Hello, this is Liv Peterson from Starting Up Now. Thanks for joining us today on KMNP Shift. In this podcast, I have the opportunity to interview L. Brian Jenkins, author of No More Nonprofits Moving from Dependency to Sustainability. In this episode, we will explore America's intentional disinvestment of previously disenfranchised communities and the vital need for intentional investments in these same communities. Take a listen and hope you enjoy KMNP Shift. Hello, Brian. How are you doing today? Great. Very good. Good. Um, so I want you to kind of tell me a little bit about your backstory, about your family history, um, and talk to me about your experience growing up. Yeah, I grew up in Waukegan, Illinois, and North Chicago as well. And when I was a kid, I distinctly remember my great-grandmother. And I remember she was, you know, old at the time, <laughs> probably in her 90s. And I remember looking at her hands. And she had picked cotton for most of her life as a sharecropper um, in her younger days. And her hands were, I mean, they were almost like leathery tough. You had to see it to understand, you know, what, what it was like. And um, and her name was Zella Glover. Um, when we were kids, we used to, I didn't want to go in the back room, you know, where she was at, you know, because we didn't want to have to empty her spit bucket because she chewed tobacco. <laughs> and so here she is, probably 95 years old, um, and she would chew tobacco. And so any of us kids that had, went back there, it was always our older relatives, our aunts would always say, hey, you know, go empty mama's tobacco. And none of us wanted to do it. But, but looking at her now as an adult, I realized what she must have lived through. Yeah. You know, what were the things that she saw that shaped, you know, who she was? And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a kid, you know, just I didn't really appreciate that back then, like most kids would, you know. Um, but now as an adult, you know, and, and, and just thinking about my life experiences and, and the sacrifices that she and my other family members made so that I can even have an opportunity to do the things that we're doing right now. That's the legacy that I'm a part of. And that legacy makes me, as an entrepreneur, as a nonprofit, you know, leader, it motivates me to continue to give and to serve and not forgetting where we came from and also how much further we have to go. And so Zella Glover is a very much a part of me as much as other family members and, and other relatives are. But that that's my base. That's my foundation. That's my history. Those are my roots. And any entrepreneur, any business owner, you need to know where you're coming from, you know, where you came from. You never forget that. But also it gives you better direction um, on, you know, on your path forward as well. And so that's part of my motivation is to say if they intentionally intended to keep Zella Glover and my great grandfather, her husband, you know, Moses Glover down. If they live through that, then that can inspire me to live through what I have to live through and go through as well. I think you have a very, very powerful quote in the book on page 29. It mm -hmm. says, there is not one aspect of America that has not been touched or has not benefited from black labor, not one. Mm -hmm. And you think about um, Zella Glover and her husband and you think about your family. Mm -hmm. um, kind of unpack this statement. Everything was geared against her from the time that she was born. And I'll make this clarification. We didn't see it like that as a family, but society was not intended for her to be successful in. 
You know, there was no educational system for her. She was taught, you know, by her family to read and write. She never completed school. Um, she never had the same opportunities that others had. You know, it was intended for her to be unsuccessful. For family to come together, particularly black families, you know, in my opinion, there's no other people in the United States that has overcome as much as the descendants of African slaves as black people. You know, not disrespecting any other people and immigrants that have come, but what black people have overcome in this country is remarkable, especially in the short amount of time that's taken place, but still so much further that needs to be done. But when I look at her and I, you know, remember and think of who she was and what she might have been, you know, I'm I'm just astonished. And that's, for me, what motivates me as an entrepreneur to know where we come from, what these systems were, what these systems are, but but to really understand, you know, how do we go forward? What's our pathway forward? How does this relate to the entrepreneur today who's, you know, maybe listen to this podcast and say, hey, this history is there, but what does it have to do with me? Mm-hmm. What I would say to them is know your history, know where you come from, you know, and if you're a black or brown nonprofit leader, this history of the United States impacts your ability to raise money. This will impact how you're viewed. This will impact the meetings that you get invited to and the meetings that you don't get invited to. It'll impact the networking opportunities that exist and those that happen that you that are always happening that you're never part of. So for me, you know, when I look at my family's history, that's, that motivates me never to quit, never to take anything for granted, to work harder, oftentimes harder than my counterparts, because I have to. That's the legacy that we come from. And it's on my mom and dad's side, but this is also my, my mom's side of the family. My great-grandfather um, was Leonard Hugh Duncan, and everybody called him Grandpa. And what he was able to do was purchase land because he and his uncle, uh, half-brother, Uncle Carl, Uncle Carl could pass as a white man. My great-grandfather, um, he, went to own, he wanted to farm his own land. He didn't want to share crop anymore. And this is in the southern part of Illinois, you know, way down in Harrisburg area, Carrier Mills area, where we're from. And he slowly began to buy his own land, but he had to buy his own land through Uncle Carl because they would not sell land to a black man at that time. So by the time my great-grandfather passed in 1972, here he is showing up with the deeds of over 300 acres of land in an area of Illinois that black men typically did not own their own land. I mean, you could lose your life for that. Mm. But his deal was he wanted to pass down a legacy. He intended for his family to be successful. And so what he wanted to do was pass down an asset that they couldn't take away from the family as easily, I should say. And to this day, that land still exists in our family. We're one of the few black families, I think the only black family in the state of Illinois that actually has a lake, literally Duncan Lake, because they found uh, minerals. They have mineral rights. And when they strip mined the land for the coal, they uh, replaced it with a lake. And so that lake is um, you know, named after my great-grandfather, um, Leonard Q. Duncan. But that legacy of passing that land down to his nine children, my grandmother being one of those children, Ressie Thomas, and that land meant everything for us. And still to this day, when I was a kid, when we used to go to Southern Illinois to visit for the summers, we would literally play on our own family land. 
And we never had to worry about anything because as far as you could see, that land was ours. And so that's the legacy that they passed down that was in, initially intended for their complete disenfranchisement, but, but because my uncle knew the value and that he knew how to manipulate the system that was set up against him, he leveraged that system through his own brother, you know, who had, you know, straight hair and blue eyes. And they sold that land to Carl Duncan. And when Leonard Q. Duncan showed up, they were infuriated that here this black man owned this land. And so that land has been a source of pride for us and our family for years. It's been a source of economic gain for years. But it's something that, you know, for me, it's more than just land. It's the legacy that was left with the intended consequences of us to be successful in that previous generation who sacrificed for us going forward. And um, even though a lot of the family has moved up to the Chicago area and outside of Carrier Mills, there are many family members that are still in the area um, and the land is still in our name. That's an amazing story. Mm. I think um, in the book you talk about investment and you talk about, um, you have a really beautiful quote kind of going along with Mm -hmm. what you're talking about. And Mm -hmm. it says, this is the America that my family survived while still being fundamentally loyal and hope that America would one day recognize their humanity, their dignity, and their contribution. Mm -hmm. And to just hear your story and hear your family's story and through all the um, intentional disinvestment, Mm -hmm. there's still perseverance. There's still a... um, desire to uh, pull through and keep mm-hmm. moving forward. Mm-hmm. And um, you said before that, you know, it is so important for Black and Latinx leaders to know this history mm-hmm. because it directly affects them and their opportunities today, especially in the nonprofit and sure. for-profit world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you asked the question or you posed the question, you have all this history. How do you move forward today? How do you how do people practically invest in black humanity, mm-hmm. invest in black human humanity, black male personhood, mm-hmm. black womanhood? How do um, people come alongside and say, hey, I know there has been an intentional disinvestment. Mm-hmm. How do I move forward and intentionally invest? Yeah, in 1787, I mean, going back to history, I love history, but there was a deal called the Three-Fifths Compromise, and it was a decision between the northern and southern states that determined that black slaves only counted as three-fifths of a person. And it was, in essence, a decision that would impact how many representatives free whites should have in the House of Representatives, therefore it was named the Three-Fifths Compromise. So in and of itself, blacks, black people, were viewed not even being fully human. And it was for political purposes, obviously. You know, in my family, we didn't. We never grew up thinking that we were less than. You know what I mean? The circumstances outside the immediate family, we were all, I mean, my family was aware of those things. Just like my wife and I were raising our children, we don't train them to think less of themselves. We want to prepare them for the world, but internally in our household, in our nuclear family, we never think of ourselves as less than, but we're fully aware of what's outside of our doors and the protection of the community, so to speak. But for people to fully understand that this system was set against, you know, black black men and black women is a sense that, you know, many of us in the nonprofit industry are trying to right the wrongs and impact society for good. But in order for us to better understand that, we need to know 
how we got in this position anyway from the very beginning. Just as we have many great immigrants that are coming to our country, we don't ask them to give up their, their culture. We shouldn't ask them to give up their language. We should let them be who they are, but, but they're also part of our country as well. Yes. And so the aspect of knowing who you are in order to better not only yourself, but those around you is very important for nonprofit leaders because oftentimes when those of us who work in communities of color, sometimes the desire to fit in asks to dismiss who you are, you know, your culture, your background, your ethnicity. I don't care who you are. If you're black, white, whoever you are, you have a d distinct ethnicity that you should be proud of. And oftentimes, in order to raise people up, you have to know who you are. You have to know who your heroes and your heroines are and, and what they've had to overcome in order to get to where they need to be. And as an entrepreneur, oftentimes, when you're trying to figure out how you're going to make ends meet, because you've got this great mission, you've got this great vision, and you've done this business plan, you raise funds, all those things, you need to know who you are at times of struggle and at times of success you will find those things out. And sometimes you have to remember who you are. We are fully human. We are people. We have overcome far more than most people in the United States have ever had to overcome. And there's still such a long way to go. That's your compass. That's your, that's your, that's your true north. That's how you orient yourself. Because there will come times, whether you're running a for-profit or non-profit, but particularly in a non-profit culture, as things are shifting, that you need to remember who you are, whose you are, and how much more you have to overcome. And also this, I'll say this as well, is the legacy that you're leaving because others are watching. And for me, a big fan of, obviously, like many of us are, Dr. King. Dr. King's last book that he wrote, Where Do We Go From Here, um, Community or Chaos, mm -hmm. is one of the most underread books wow. because he's reflecting on the success of the civil rights movement, but he's looking at that in his rearview mirror, fully realizing that for black Americans and America to reach its true uh, fulfillment of its promise, it must begin to look at the economic realities that African-Americans were intentionally set apart from. So for me, understanding this as an entrepreneur is far more than just creating revenue and profits and and impacting and teaching kids. It's allowing America to live up to its entrepreneurial promise to its black and brown and women citizens. And we're still very much in that journey today. I think you pose a very important question in your book mm -hmm. following that, where it says, what if America had policies and provisions to restore at the bare minimum mm. four times what America earned from its African-American captives? Mm. What might that look like for African-Americans if that practice had been followed at the end of the Civil War? Mm -hmm. And then you have this quote that says, dependency on funding from others to solve problems creates a culture of cannibalism versus mm -hmm. a culture of commerce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that, you know, when an RFP request for a proposal um, that's in the nonprofit world comes out, you have so many nonprofits that are competing for dollars. And for me, I always said, OK, you know, if everybody is going in that direction, well, what you know, if everybody's taking a right? What happens if I look at the left? You know, are we becoming better beggars or are we becoming better innovators? Mm -hmm. And I knew, you know, I tried to get capital, I mean, dollars, I should say, from the feds, you know, the state and the city 
never was successful at it, but I submitted those RFPs, the request for proposals, just like anybody else, because that's what I was taught to do. But I soon realized that it wasn't successful, it wasn't working, so I can't keep going down that same pathway. Therefore, I had to say, you know, how can I innovate? How can I create better products or services that was in my area of expertise, entrepreneurship education? Mm -hmm. So, and as I began to innovate, I began to attract people who are saying, hey, Brian, we like the fact that you're not completely dependent upon our dollars, that you have come up with a product or service that can be sold in the marketplace that the market would actually buy. And so as that shift, you know, started taking place, you know, it wasn't like it wasn't, I went out there intentionally did this. It's something that I saw that was taking place based on my activities of running the organization. It's interesting. The less dependent we become on gifts and donations, the more dollars we've been able to attract from private families who want to support our mission. You know, it's almost an oxymoron. But this is what we've been seeing as entrepreneurity has really grown, you know, particularly in, this, in 2019, this last year was our biggest leap ever. But what we're seeing is we're innovative if we try and stick with the paradigm of never quitting, you know, of always striving to solve our own problems, just like our my family did, like many black and brown people had to do. If we stick with solving our problems, it leads to innovation. And that's what I think many nonprofits, even for-profits, need to do is like, how can we innovate ourselves out of our situations? And what does that look like? Don't present the problem, present the opportunity, and then figure out, work backwards as to how to accomplish that opportunity. That's what people are attracted to. People can complain and all about problems all day long. That's common. That's what we do. But several years ago, I, I switched my mindset to, to this, this approach I call PSA. Um, it's, yes, it's a play on public service announcement. But for me, PSA is you state the problem, you create a marketplace solution, and then you act. You launch an action. So I started seeing problems. I can't raise funds. Okay, that's a problem. But what's the solution? The funds are there. It was up to me to figure out how to provide a solution that I would bring others in that want to be a part of that solution as well. Writing the check, sending the funds is not the issue. The money is there. The issue is getting others to align with your core beliefs and how they can be a part of the solution. People want to be a part of a solution, but sometimes it's a matter of stating that, articulating that in which they can involve themselves and be a part of what you're a part of. Let them understand the problem is also their problem too. I have found that many people, particularly in the private wealth sector, they want to help. They also realize that they have benefited from this system too. So sometimes they might not be culturally aware of the challenges that do exist in the urban context, but they also realize that they have a responsibility and they want to give and they want to be involved. They just need an unwrap, you know, and what we try to do is say, hey, you've experienced some level of success in your business. You solved a problem or created an opportunity for yourself. Can those same tactics or strategies be used to guide others? You know, that's what people they're looking for solutions. Everybody's looking for solutions. So can you kind of give me some examples of in entrepreneurity or in your entrepreneurship journey, what are some practical ways that you have seen mm-hmm. um, the majority culture intentionally invest, invest in entrepreneurity and invest in the nonprofit world? Yes. I mean, it's been, and 2019 was an incredible 
challenge for entrepreneurity in an incredible year. The year started out, we had just purchased a coffee shop in 20, at the end of 2017, 2018, and brought in our coffee director, a young lady by the name of Carrie Pendleton. And Carrie's um, 10 years in coffee, a true master in coffee. Um, she's our coffee director. Brought Carrie in in 2018, and she ran over uh, our coffee shop, Overflow, very successfully, increased sales by 16% in our first year, literally turned the coffee shop around um, and provided a significant increase in the customer experience. So here we are coming off the great year of 2018. In January 2019, the building manager comes to me. You know, we're located State Street. We're comfortable. You know, it was a great year financially in a sense that we had just for us. You know, our average year been about up to that time had been around six or seven hundred thousand dollars in annual revenue. You know, we're going into 2019 and the building comes to me and says, hey, you know, we're thinking about building out our a high school, a private school. You know, so I already got a K through eight school there and we're going to take this other area and we're going to expand on that. Well, that other area happened to be our offices, our coffee shop, you know, our conference rooms, everything that we have been doing up to this point for training and working with entrepreneurs and then obviously running our coffee shop. And so I'm like, okay, you know, I knew this day was coming. The building had kind of told me about that before. You know, I asked the building manager, said, when is this going to take place? Is it, you know, you know, a year from now, two years from now? Is he trying to, you know, help me to get ready for this? And he says, no, this is January 10th, 2019. And he says, no, you guys got to vacate the premises on this side by April 30th. And I was like, wow, that's in four months. So I was blown away. I was obviously frustrated. I was angry. I told my director of operations, admin, Rand, uh, Miss Randy Cragen, and I was frustrated. I was I went home. I said, "Hey, I'm going to take the day off. I'm frustrated. I don't know, you know, how we're going to survive this. So don't talk to me. I'm walking out. I'll talk to you in another day." I go home. Literally, um, and I stated this in my in the annual report in 2019. I was frustrated. I was blaming God, you know, why'd you let us get here? And, you know, I got staff, I got responsibilities, I got family, I got a lot of things on me. And, you know, I was upset and I was reminded of my own words. Who do you come from? This is just another step for you to accomplish. You know, literally get off the ground, stop complaining and get to work. Mm -hmm. And I go back into the office the next day and Randy, to her credit, had already started identifying and looking for properties that we could relocate to. And to make a long story short, we found a property on Michigan Avenue in the heart of the South Loop where, we're, where we are that is going to be the new home of our coffee shop and our co-sharing space at 1449 South Michigan. And so in order to make that process happen, I had developed the relationship for the past 20 plus years with donors and investors who believed in the mission and the vision of entrepreneurship. And they saw this, here's this problem, entrepreneurity needs to move. Entrepreneurity, you know, has never had its own home. And so this, you know, I'm not going to mention this particular person by name, but he's always believed in what we're doing. And so he provided us with a large check in order for us to purchase this building in the heart of the South Loop, which is about 10,000 square feet. And this building, turns out, is a former home of VJ's Records. And VJ's Records was the Motown before Motown existed. And so we're actually purchasing the building 
that VJ's Records was started in, a black entrepreneurial startup that was basically a studio that produced um, and allowed black music to be heard in the 50s. They were the first label to actually sign and bring the Beatles over when nobody knew who the Beatles were. And so the deal is, is that we're actually, our new location is going to be in that building. The process to get to that point was, yes, we had to get kicked out. Yes, we had to go through pain and suffering and anguish and trying to figure out all those things. The end result is that not only did we raise more capital by donors stepping in and giving gifts with no strings attached. And what I mean by that is this. It was not that they basically gave the capital a significant portion of the capital in the sense that we could buy this building, not in their name, not with some kind of sunset clause, but the building was purchased on December 18, 2019 in Entrenuity's name. And it's a building that's in the heart of the South Loop, which is one of the highest appreciating areas in Chicago right now. So this building will only increase in value, which gives Entrenuity equity to be able to leverage in order to grow our mission and our vision. And, and then on our first floor is our coffee shop. You know, that's going to be led by Carrie and her team. These are revenue generating entities. You know, Overflow will, is projected to do around $400,000 a year. We're projecting the, co- you know, the uh, Moxie, the, the name of our co-sharing space on the second floor and part of the first floor. We expect it to generate around seven to $800,000 a year as well. So here, what I thought the Lord meant for evil, you know, here it is. We turned around this problem into a solution, and it turns out we're one of the first black um, companies, organizations to actually buy in the South Loop in the last three to four years, where property is becoming that much more scarce. So how did this happen? We have a lead donor with a significant gift that gave Entrenuity the capital needed for the purchase. We then went back to other donors and investors that then provided low interest loans because of this trust that we have developed over time. They saw the problem, they wanna be part of the solution, and this is how they acted. And then we have also raised some funds through gifts because they wanna be a part of the solution. I think that's the direction that Entrenuity is is going in, we didn't get a, a property. I have a friend of mine in a city that was given a property by a religious institution. And it, it's the property needs so much work that you wonder if it's really worth him taking this on. You know, whereas with our property and our donors saw this as an opportunity to not only stabilize entrepreneurity, to provide a home, to provide sustainability, but let entrepreneurity further its vision by owning this property and the value that this property creates, not only for Entrenuity as an organization, but for also those we're going to be able to serve from that location. What is the solution? And you, you talk about the solution, and this is a this is a tangible way of intentional reparation. Absolutely. It's very intentional, and I'll say this too. Once you develop relationships with people, there's three things that I always believe in. You tell the truth. You always be transparent, and that leads to trust. So truth, transparency, and trust. Everything is, for me, there are core relationships that we have with our key donors and investors. I present the opportunity, and they ask what the need is to accomplish that opportunity. They make the decision on whether they want to be a part of it, 
you know, they can be a part of it at different levels or not, but they want to be a part of it. Well, that's basically based on the trust. You know, if we as nonprofit leaders or, or organizations, even for-profit, are not delivering on what you say you're going to do, I can promise you those levels of trust will be retracted. I've experienced that as well on things when I made mistakes and was not able to deliver on the promises that I made. I have also seen funding come in as we have in 2019. I've also experienced funding when it's withheld and pulled back. And if we are not accountable for the decisions that we make, and if you don't own up to them, if you don't man up, or if you don't woman up to them, you can be prepared for a lack of trust to take place. That's why I'm very big on Entrenuity's finances. Entrenuity's finances are posted publicly. Um, our 990s are everything, you know, because you always tell the truth and numbers, do, you know, numbers should never lie to people. And in the nonprofit culture that we do exist in, you know, your financials should be always available to those as a public charity or public organization for those who have questions. We invest a lot in our audits. We invest a lot in our bookkeeping. We invest a lot. And I have a board of directors that holds me accountable for making sure that I commit to and reach those goals and objectives that I need to, but also I'm accountable for the financial health of the organization as well. For those of you who are listening, for those of you that have listened to these past episodes and you're hearing the history and you're working through um, just the reality of the disinvestment in Black communities and Latinx communities, and Mm -hmm. you're looking at this and you're like, well, dang, like, how do we change or Mm -hmm. what can I do, you know? When Brian was discussing the process of the building on 1449 South Michigan, purchasing an asset that can generate revenue, putting people in positions where they're receiving the best and not the leftovers, where they um, are getting gifts, no strings attached. Mm-hmm. And so um, thank you, Brian, for sharing that story and just kind of giving a practical example of what can you do as a white-led ministry or organization or nonprofit? Mm-hmm. How do you intentionally invest Mm -hmm. in um, Mm -hmm. Latinx or black communities Mm -hmm. or, you know, ministries. One of the things that you hear a lot today is white privilege, which is real. But also what I try to say is to someone who may be a person of privilege and of means that may be listening to this, or you may represent a nonprofit that's experiencing some of the things that we've experienced as well. I would say this is you state the problem. You know, um, a a buddy of mine, you know, I won't mention his name, but he said, Brian, the money is not the issue. In fact, he said, you know, as a nonprofit, this is about five or six years ago. He said, as a nonprofit, stop worrying about the money. He literally told me that. He said, focus on providing the best product or service that you can. With the network that you have, the money is not the issue. And so what I would say to someone who's listening to this is say, you know what, what is it that you deliver that's excellent, that takes nothing away from you? You know, what is your value proposition? Find out what that is and do that with excellence. Everything else doesn't matter, you know, because we were doing a lot of different things trying to make the money work, you know, because we're trying to stay afloat just like every other nonprofit. But when my mindset shifted, from only focusing on the money, but to really say, what am I solving today? It literally changed, and so did the actual cash flow. I attracted additional capital and and donors and investors in a way that I had not done before because I was not thinking like 
only like a nonprofit, which I think I kind of, you know, slacked off and started thinking like that just to try to make ends meet. But I started to figure out, okay, I need to solve some problems here. You know, I've done it decently, but I really need to make the leap. And when that conversation took place several years ago, it changed everything, you know, and I think that's why we're experiencing the growth that we are today. And for those, you know, one of the things I would always say if you are a white-led organization, what I would recommend, you know, if, and if you're in a black or brown community, work with the existing leadership. Do not always come in with your solution and ignore what's already been there before. Mm-hmm. That is the dominant model that exists, particularly, you know, my background pretty much is in religious-based organizations, you know, churches and ministries. I cannot tell you the number of ministries that are white-led that have set up in black and brown communities that absorb all the capital and do not provide introductions. They do not provide opportunities for networking. They become the dominant island or basically they isolate themselves and never share their resources. And that is a real, real issue because one of the things I pride myself on is being able to direct, you know, and connect, you know, people to other people when it's the right situation. I've had earned my relationships, but I also feel that it's very important that I provide those same relationships to others when it's appropriate. But it's also my responsibility. And I have found that many people are open to that. Um, They don't want to be hit with everybody. But when the right opportunity does exist, I feel it's my responsibility to make those introductions happen. Thanks again for joining us today on KMNP Shift, where we discuss the unseen and unspoken barriers you must overcome to do your job. We are always happy to hear from you, so please reach out to us at www.entrenuity.com. Interested in booking a workshop on this content? Email us at info at Follow us on all social media channels at Entrenuity. And don't forget to grab a copy of your book, No More Nonprofits Moving from Dependency to Sustainability, available on Amazon. Until next time, this is your host, Liv Peterson with KMNP Shift.